0: Please turn in your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, page 832. In the Bibles in front of you, as well as to Lord's Day 29 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 885. The back of your hymnals. Jesus is Celebrating the Passover with his disciples in this passage, and he is at this point in the gospel, according to Matthew, instituting Lord's Supper, and he's teaching his disciples that the Passover has its fulfillment, or looks for its fulfillment, in the Lord's Supper, in his, into his, to his death on the cross, rather, and as he uh, connects those two, we want to give attention to that, looking at Matthew 26 When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed." It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So far the reading of God's own holy word. May He grant us His understanding by His Spirit to the bearing of much fruit in our lives. Tonight we look again at the Sacrament of Lord's Supper, next to justification, there was really no issue more uh, discussed, debated during the time of the Reformation than Lord's Supper. And we say, well, now wait a minute, that seems a bit much. Is it really that important? Is it really that important that that we debate about Lord's Supper? And yet, set before our eyes is how one is made right with God, and God extends to us this means of grace that by it we might understand the reality of what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there was agreement amongst the Reformers as to the fact that we do participate in Christ. The disagreement was, how? How do we partake? We'll see how that is laid out here in Lord's Day 29. I'm going to read those two questions and answers for us tonight. Question 78 and question 79, do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No, just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread of his body and the cup of his blood? or why, is, why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? Why does Paul use the words "a participation in Christ's body and blood? Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so to his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, this is what is before us tonight, and before we look at how we understand Lord's Supper, the presence of Christ, the real presence of Christ, I just want us to understand the issue behind the sacraments is in the minds of every person who has ever lived or will ever live, and that is how is one made right with God. Creator. Now you may say, well, I don't think that's true. Yet scripture tells us it's true. Scripture tells us that everyone knows that they have sinned against God. Everyone understands this and they suppress this truth in unrighteousness. We are created religious. We're created to worship and we're created, as Genesis tells us, to worship the Creator, the one who has made us. Every person who has ever lived or will ever live, knows this, though they suppress the truth. They know there is a breach with God. They know that there is a broken relationship, that there is something wrong with that relationship. Either people avoid others who speak about that reality, about the natural bent of their sin, or... When it's spoken about, there's an attempt to silence the messenger. It's really what's behind any movement today, uh, most movements today, where we're trying to privatize the faith, to keep it inside four walls or to keep it inside of us, but not to allow it to be proclaimed. Yet Jesus said in Matthew 24 that for the kingdom to come, the gospel must go forth to the ends of the earth. The gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth, then the end will come, Matthew 24. Satan's plan then in getting people to suppress that truth, not only that, to make it illegal to speak of Christ and of our need of Him, is to keep that from coming to pass. He knows the scriptures. He understands God's plan And he will do whatever he can to keep it from coming to pass. I've said from this pulpit that there is an increasing secularism. Looking at the world without God, we've seen it on numerous occasions. I keep it in front of us because we have to realize that what seems to be increasing is darkness and not light. And so rather than going with the flow and saying, well, this is just the natural course of things, as the, as the secularists will say, well, evolution will bring us to a, a, a development, a good development, to a higher development, we recognize, no, sin creates a devolution. We move away from God. We move away from truth by nature. We want, we want to get further from the truth. We don't want to go toward the truth, and therefore we need to proclaim that truth. There's worship going on today, to be sure. We're created to worship. Worship today is increasingly a worship of man. A hope in humanity, a desire to be delivered from the sentence of death by something that we do. Those even who consider themselves non-religious worship. They worship themselves. They worship their plans they worship their hopes, their liturgy, if we can put it that way, their act of service, their, their order of life is a humanistic order of service, a humanistic liturgy. They don't want to see what God sets before us as necessary for our redemption. They would rather go their own way and chart their own course. They follow their own order of worship, and that Litany or that theme is be true to yourself. Their lives are filled with actions, with decisions, with investment that reveals this motto, if you will. God's word is ignored by them and they keep searching for peace and assurance and are unable to find it. Well, even religious people Worship, and we say, well, of course they do. That's part of the definition of being religious. Worshiping in keeping with what you believe. What I'm saying here is we need to be careful that we don't worship ourselves just as those who consider themselves non-religious. Worshiping our goodness. Practice of worshiping ourselves is true from the beginning, from the fall. The attitude of self-righteousness has been with us. The sin of pride is a principal sin in our lives. That attitude was around from the very beginning and it showed itself in Jesus' day. They were celebrating the Passover, and the, those who considered themselves religious were celebrating the Passover, keeping the laws, the commands of the synagogue, and many more, because they wanted to come to God on their own terms. They wanted to say to God, well, look what we're doing. Look, look how faithful we are, saved by our faithfulness, you might say, by our religiosity. They thought it possible to come to God through morality, through their zeal, and found it difficult to believe that God needed to do anything radical to rescue them from themselves. The illustration that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this is the rich young man. You remember the story in Mark chapter ten. He comes to Jesus and he says, "Teacher what must good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Very interesting. He thinks himself good able to define what good is and he and Jesus have this conversation and the Lord Jesus exposes the law or reveals the law to him as not just in the outward keep, keeping of the law but in the inward uh the, the nature of one's heart and and he What what I want us to note about that parable is that though he, or that encounter is though he knew himself to be good, there was still something nagging at him that he still had something more to do, he felt, to be saved. He hadn't, after all that he had done, he says, teacher, I've kept all of those laws that you've given to me, but there was yet something missing. He said, there's still something that I need to do in order to gain eternal life. And Jesus' point in talking with this man was that no one is saved by goodness, their religiosity, their zeal, none of this. At the end of the conversation, Jesus gave him something to do. And what he gave him to do pointed out where his idolatry existed. He said, get rid of everything that you have. And then come and follow me. And the man, said, the man was, went away sad because he, his pride, his trust was in all the things he had done and all of the things he had. And Jesus said, no, you need to let go of those and cling to me. These things did not give him assurance of life, all of these things that he had done, and yet he trusted in them, in these things. Acts of goodness. They, the, and, and the blessing that he had, it spoke of, of God's, of God's uh, in his mind, God's blessing to him. Because of all he had done, he had received all of this. He believed that God was, was pleased with him and that he had received blessing because of his goodness. It spoke of favor to him. And Jesus said, no, you need to let go of it, for it is not your life. In effect, he's saying, I am your life. Turn to me. Well, as we turn our attention now to Lord's Supper, let me, let me say this and listen carefully. Don't look to be saved because of your religiosity, because you partake of Lord's Supper, because you've been baptized. Partaking in Lord's Supper can't save a person, but neither should we neglect Lord's Supper. Neither should we Turn away from it, for it is a means of grace by which God gives comfort and assurance to the one who partakes in faith. Lord's Supper reveals that we cannot make ourselves right with God. Something radical has to happen. God the Son had to come in flesh, give his body, shed his blood, that this sacrifice might open the way for us to come to God. God is the initiator, the enactor, and the keeper of covenant. He makes covenant and seals it with his sacrifice. And his spirit then works in us that understanding of what is portrayed in the sacraments. And our hearts need to be changed that we might see the, dr- the drastic and necessary step God needed to take in order to bring us to him. And to assure us that the sacrifice was complete now study of the sacraments may not be the most exciting thing that we do (laughs) we might say well doctrine is it really all that exciting in fact I heard Sinclair Ferguson once say that he had been to conferences for over 40 years and he had never heard a speaker talk on Lord's Supper that was at one of the conferences where he spoke on Lord's Supper but for 40 years, he said, I've been going to conferences. I've never heard it as a, as a subject. Why is that? Well, largely because it's mysterious. And this evening, there's, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm with John Kelvin on this. He says, it's better to experience this than to try to explain it. How one is united to Christ. And yet, that is what we're going to see as we look at this together. And this, this doctrine is so very critical Because it reminds us again of God's love for us, establishing us, grounding us, rooting us in that truth of his love. God gives comfort and assurance through this fellowship that is experienced in Lord's Supper that he forgives sin, justifies the sinner, that he grants salvation. It is true, no one is saved by eating bread and drinking wine, but God is tied to the sacraments a powerful reality. We see it in the catechism in the other uh, sacrament as well. God says that He wants us to see in baptism. We've looked at that already, that our sins are washed away as water washes away dirt from the body. So surely, Christ's blood and His Spirit take away our sins. Question and answer 73. Why does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words, to teach us. The blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. Sign has an underlying reality. In bread and wine, God says, I put into your hands. In this bread and the wine, God says, I put into your hands. A sign and seal of my covenant with you. I want you to fellowship. I want you to partake. I want you to come near. When we eat, when we break, we often speak of it as breaking bread together. Uh, we fellowship. It is a sign of intimacy. It is a sign of, of drawing near and a, a sign of wanting to, to be nourished there in that, in that moment. The sign has underlying reality. Sinclair Ferguson told the story as he was speaking on Lord's Supper of how he had some young men in his church who said, We don't need Lord's Supper. We have the Bible. We have the Word. And I believe it fully, completely. And Dr. Ferguson said, I did a little experiment. I looked on to see if they had a ring on their finger, and I said to them, Well, Could you just do an experiment with with me? Could you go home and for the next six months tell your wife that you love her but do not touch her? Don't kiss her. Don't hug her. Don't touch her. How long would it be before she said, do you love me? You see, there's something more than cerebral that we we understand in this relationship. God knows that we're more than just getting a doctrine. He wants us to partake. He wants us to take hold. He wants us to draw near. And however mysterious it is, as that bread is set before us, as that wine is set before us, he's saying, this is the seal, the sign and seal of my fellowship with you. Not only am I communicating the truth to your minds, but I want you to see and I want you to touch. Understanding that you are brought near by faith in Christ. He gives these inanimate signs to communicate with us. We have to understand that as we come to Lord's Supper, that there is something more going on. Well, that brings us to question answer 78, the debate surrounding Christ's presence in Lord's Supper. How are we to understand this bread and wine, the debate at the time of the Reformation? Jesus says there in Matthew 26, let me read it again. Now, as they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins and we saw how that was attached to exodus 24 last week this this blood of the covenant that sealed And just as that blood that Moses sprinkled upon the people there in Exodus 24 didn't save them but spoke of a reality of what was to come, so Jesus is saying before his death, what I am about to do is that which is real and which will bring you to my Father and give you life. What does Jesus mean by these words? Well, to get at that, I, I want to look at two, the two more extreme uh, positions on this. The first being the Roman Catholic position, that of transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic Church taught that what Jesus was saying was that the bread and the wine changed into Christ's body and blood when the sacrament was administered. And then on the other side, the memorialists said that the sacrament was nothing more than a remembering of Christ. Nothing. There was nothing happening. It's just a mere memorial. What can I remember about Jesus? What do I remember concerning Him? Well, let's look at those in turn before we get to the position that as Reformed Christians we hold. Because of their teaching, the Roman Catholics lifted the bread and the wine up to the level of worship. They were saying, this indeed is Jesus' bread and body and blood. You're taking hold of Him. Literally. They took those words, this is my body, this is my blood, to that wrong conclusion leading people to worship, they still do, leading people to worship something other than Jesus. Why do we say this? Well, because when Jesus made this statement, he was standing right there in front of them. He was present, and so in his speaking, this is my body, this is my blood, he cannot say, well, this is my body, and this is my blood, and that's my body, and that's my blood. That's not what, he's, that's not what he means. He's speaking figuratively. Well, the memorialists captured the biblical words of 1 Corinthians 11, where Jesus said his followers were to remember his death until he came, comes again. There they saw it as a mere memorial, something to just remember him by, but they did not take seriously that word, those words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood. That meat-eating position, which we as Reformed Christians hold, is uh, Jesus, we we would state that Jesus is employing figurative language as he does elsewhere. When he says, I am the good shepherd, though he's not tending sheep. He says, I am the door, though he's not someone who hangs on hinges and goes back and forth. Though he speaks those words, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, no, he does not mean that the disciples' hearts would burst open like a fountain. Here we understand his words figuratively. This is my body he did not mean this loaf is my actual flesh and bone. Question 78 sets it before us again. The, the catechism writers just bring us through slowly. Do, you, do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? Or the new covenant in his blood? Why does Paul use the words of participation in Christ's body and blood? Reformers wanted to show that they had not just come up with this idea. They give the answer. Christ has has good reason for these words, answer 79. He has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so to his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. And this is in keeping with, answer 78 says at the end, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. There is more going on in these sacraments which Christ has instituted by the work of the Spirit. God works by His Spirit such that we might participate in the sacrifice, in Christ. We saw that last week that we are partaking in the sacrifice, participating in it, fellowshipping with Christ. The Spirit lifts us up to Christ so that we might truly fellowship with Him. The scriptural support for this understanding there in the catechism, I'm going to look at some of those verses with you this evening. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17 verses 10 and 11 where God is speaking to Abraham. He says to Abraham, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. There is a covenant which exists, and this sign would point to that covenant. This is the covenant between me and you. An assurance, a comfort. Then Exodus chapter 12 God gives instructions as to how the people are to be eating the Passover, how they're to prepare for it, and how they are to uh, go out. He says then in verse uh, uh, 10, you shall let none of the food remain till the morning, anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. There's a reality in this participation God is seeing the blood, and He is passing over. He sees the bloody sacrifice, and He does not destroy. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks of how God provided for Israel in the wilderness. He's referring to the manna, to water from the rock. And yet he says something interesting there, 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. He uses that word. This is spiritual food. It is not merely for physical nourishment, but it points up to God who has provided pointing forward and providing in Christ, from whom streams of living water flow. The rock was Christ. The authors of the catechism declare their understanding is not a novel understanding. God spoke this way before the coming of Christ. And they write then in the answer, 79, so Christ has good reason for these words to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. What is needed for this sacrament to be more than simply a memorial or an outward event is God's Spirit. And we see it there. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, this occurs. We rely on his work to lift us up to Christ in the heavenlies where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that we might behold him and be nourished in our souls for eternal life. Listen to what it says, that second half of answer 79. But more important, more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. We share in his true body and blood, his suffering and obedience is reckoned as our own, as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Christ is that representative, and we are then united to Him. We are in Him, such that God sees that price paid as though we had paid it, as we are drawn near to Him by faith. As we partake, then, in Lord's Supper, we are being lifted up to fellowship with Him, to long for Him, to hunger for His presence to be satisfied in our spiritual thirst by being drawn near to Him. This is the way of salvation, theology of the Bible, which declares the way of life. We cannot keep the Word of God even for a moment. Our hope is that we are participants in the sacrifice, participants in Christ. As we are nourished by bread and wine, so we are nourished by the body and blood of Christ. We don't ask God, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life as the rich young man? The answer has been given in fullness in the Scriptures. We are to be united in faith to Him. He is our life. As we draw near, He says, I will nourish you. This is the union effected in the Lord's Supper. We don't worship the elements, but neither do we neglect the sacrament, for by it we're comforted and assured of real life through real participation in the death and resurrection of the real Christ. John chapter 6, though this is happening before the institution of Lord's Supper and therefore there's not an understanding of the sacrament, nevertheless, Jesus is teaching about that that. That sacramental language, that figurative sense, when he speaks, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. If anyone by faith partakes in me, he will live. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, speaking of his death upon the cross, his sacrifice. He says this in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Speaking of the faith by which we take hold of Christ and God giving that sign, not just giving us cerebral or intellectual knowledge, but rather an element that He has instituted that we might take hold and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience that He is good, the psalmist says. Well, let me close by by reading Romans chapter 6. As we think of the end of that answer, in answer 79, it says that as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in His remembrance, we're assured that All of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Listen to how Paul writes of that union when he says, "If For since we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. God says, I nourish you, I provide for you through my Son, that as you take and eat, as you take and drink, you remember and believe that Christ's body and blood has been given for the complete forgiveness of your sins, that you are brought near, and that you now live in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper. We thank you for uh, the understanding that you set before us in your Word that we are in, in some mysterious way brought up into the life of your Son. By your Spirit, we are enlivened to new life and we increasingly die to sin. We are not to live in it any longer, but by the power of the Spirit to put to death these these works of the flesh and to live in newness of life. Oh Lord, may we be strengthened in our faith, in our partaking, in our witnessing of these sacraments that we might experience and that we might understand what you are teaching us in your word. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.